Spring is my favorite time of the year for many reasons, and one is that it is the beginning of a new baseball season. And no matter how bad your team did last year, and our team did really bad last year, <laughs> hope springs eternal. At the beginning of every new season, all 30 teams have their dream resurrected that perhaps they could win the big one. Even the Chicago Cubs believed they could win again. The last time the Chicago Cubs won the World Series was 1908. That's over 100 years ago. Back when they won that game, let me just tell you who their competition was. It was the New York Highlanders and the Boston Doves. That's how long it's been, all right? Now, before all the Cubbies send me email, let me just say I recognize that the, the Texas Rangers have never won a World Series. But send me emails after we've tried for 100 years, okay? Uh, but really, the thing that I'm most excited about uh, about this season is that this is a season, once again, we celebrate Easter. And Easter is not a pastime, it's not a distraction, it's not a game. It's about real life. It is the most important event that has ever taken place in the history of the world. And we celebrate it today together, don't we? It's a great time. You can clap for that. <laughs> And one of the reasons that it's so very important is because of the problems that we experience on a regular basis in this fallen world. You know, one of my favorite movies is the movie where Tom Hanks plays the astronaut Jim Lovell on the 1970 moon mission. And, and in that movie, they're traveling toward the moon, and all of a sudden, there's a terrible explosion. And uh, all of a sudden, their mission changes from getting to the moon to just staying alive and returning safely. Houston, uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden, and they're given a mission. And their mission is to care for and to manage God's creation. And every day, they have the wonderful privilege of walking with God in a perfect garden. And then something goes terribly wrong. One day, they decide that they're smarter than their creator, and they decide they want to be the gods of their own life, and they are separated from God. And they go and they hide themselves naked and ashamed in the bushes, and they hear a voice saying, Eden, we have a problem. And that scene is played out over and over again, time and time throughout the years. Rome, we have a problem. Jerusalem, we have a problem. Nazi Germany, we have a problem. New York City, Boston, San Francisco, Dallas, we have a problem. Rockwall, Rowlett, Mesquite, Garland, Forney, Richardson, we have a problem. And you might argue with me, we don't have a problem, we have problems. And that's true, we do. And some of those problems are just because we live in a fallen world. And there's death, and there's disease, and there's war. It's a part of living in a world that's affected by sin. There are other problems that we have are collateral damage that comes from living around other selfish people. And their sin washes over onto us and creates a kind of poison in our life. But if we were really honest today, we'd have to admit that many of the problems that we have are self-inflicted wounds. 
And yet they're really just uh, side effects. They're symptoms of the deeper problem. Things like financial debt and rebellious students and failed marriages and all the like, runaway addictions. They're symptoms of a deeper problem, and it is a single problem. It is the problem that we are disconnected from our Creator, just as Adam and Eve were. And into that problem-filled world, Jesus Christ came over 2,000 years ago to reconnect us with God. This Easter, as we celebrate what Jesus did on that weekend, I want us to look at just three stories. And they're stories that... uh, we've just pulled out, we could have looked at thousands of stories because over and over and over again, the miracle of Easter changes everything. The first story you'll find in Mark, the 14th chapter. You've also find a record of it in Luke, the 7th chapter, or Matthew, the 26th chapter. And when you look at all three of those accounts, they don't conflict with one another, they complement one another. And you get a full understanding of what happened that day. Uh, This particular story that's recorded in the Bible took place two days before the crucifixion. Jesus has traveled from the Judean wilderness, rather the Sea of Galilee, down to Jerusalem. And he's not staying in Jerusalem. He's actually staying about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem, uh, about a 10 to 15 minute walk into Jerusalem in a little bitty town called Bethany. Now, he's staying there because of his friend. His friend lives there. His name is Lazarus. And he and the disciples are there in that little town. And in that town, there is a a fellow by the name of Simon, Simon the Pharisee. He was a religious leader. And by this time in Jesus' ministry, as it's coming to a close, uh, he's quite the celebrity. And Simon thinks, what a coup if I could get Jesus to come to my house and I could throw a party. And so that's what he does. And he invites Jesus and all the disciples to come to a banquet. And the Bible tells us there in Mark 14 that they're reclining at the tables. Now, at that particular time in history, you didn't have a table where you would sit up to go to the table, but the table was down toward the floor, and you would either sit cross-legged, or most of the time, you would actually lean in to the table with your dirty, nasty feet away from the food and your mouth closest to the food. Pretty good idea when you really think about it. And while Jesus is reclining there at the table as a guest of Simon the Pharisee, a woman comes in, a woman who was not invited to the party. The reason she was not invited to the party to be very kind is that she didn't have a very good reputation in the town because of what she did for a living. And you have to wonder, why is this lady at this party? I mean, nobody wants her at the party. The only thing that you can figure out by reading the whole story is that somewhere along the way, she heard Jesus talk about the love of God, that the God that he came to communicate is a God of hope, a God of second chances, a God of miracle finishes. And that message has captured her heart, has rekindled the hope in her life, and she wants to come and just thank Jesus for it. And so she slips into the party, and she comes very quietly at his feet, and the Bible tells us that she breaks open an expensive vial of perfume. And she begins to pour it out on the feet of Jesus Christ, and in the process of doing that, She thinks about what this means for her life, and she becomes so overwhelmed that she begins to weep uncontrollably. And the tears fall down from her eyes, and the tears actually wash the feet of Jesus. And she's so embarrassed, she doesn't have a towel, so she lets her hair down, and she begins to dry the feet of Jesus with her hair. 
And Simon is over there and he's looking at all this going on and he's thinking, I thought Jesus was a prophet. If Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was and he wouldn't let her touch his feet. And the Bible tells us that Jesus answered Simon's thoughts. I'm glad that my wife doesn't have that superpower. <laughs> I'd be in trouble. But Jesus, because he was God, he did have it. And he, could, he knew what Simon was thinking. In fact, what a lot of the people were thinking in that room. And so he tells a story. He says, Simon, there was a man who was owed money by two other men. And one man owed him 50 days wages. Another man owed him 500 days wages. He forgave them both. Which do you think was more grateful for that forgiveness? This is not a trick question. And Simon says, well, of course, the guy who he forgave the most would be most grateful. I want to pick up and read to you because it's so powerful in Luke, the seventh chapter. And it says, in turning toward the woman, he didn't turn toward Simon, he turned toward the woman. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The Bible tells us in another account here that one of the disciples said, what a waste for someone to take a vial of perfume that would have taken an entire year's wages and to waste it by pouring it out on the feet of Jesus. And Jesus responded, she has anointed me for my funeral I mean who does that you have to ask the question who spends an entire year's wage to buy an expensive vial of perfume well it's obvious when you understand the background it was her daddy who did that when she was a little girl growing up he knew that one day that she would be married and he prepared for that all of his life and somewhere in that journey he bought an expensive vial of perfume and then he accumulated other things for her dowry and he handed all of that over when a he would hand that all over when a man would come and take his daughter how is it that this woman this grown woman still has that vial of expensive perfume from her dowry I mean why doesn't she sell that instead of selling herself why is she holding on to this? She's holding on because it is her last shred of hope that one day her dreams might come true in some miraculous way that some young man would come along and love her for herself. And that's all she has left is that vial of perfume. And then Jesus comes and tells her about the love of God. And she takes all that she has and she's willing to sacrifice it in gratitude for that good news that there is someone who loves her, someone who will forgive her, someone who has not given up on her. Her family gave up on her. The town gave up on her. But God had not given up on her. There's a second story that's found in one of those chapters that relates this story. In Mark, the 14th chapter, it goes on to tell us that the next day, all of the disciples were gathered for a meal again, except this time it was just Jesus 
and his disciples in an upper room. It's what we call the Last Supper. And during that meal, Jesus broke the bread and he shared the wine. He told them once again about his death. And then he said these words. He said, all of you will forsake me. And Simon, this is a different Simon. This is Simon Peter, the disciple. He said, oh, Lord, not me. Everybody else may forsake you, but I'm not going to forsake you. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Simon, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. They finish the supper together. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, the temple guards from Caiaphas, the high priest, come, and they arrest Jesus in the dark. And they carry him off to Caiaphas's house. And while he is in Caiaphas's house being tortured and going through a mock trial before they're going to bring him to Pilate the next morning, Simon Peter has followed from a distance. He is now in the courtyard. He's warming himself by a fire, and a young girl comes up and says, aren't you one of his followers? And he denies it. And then another person comes and says, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And this time he uses a curse word to deny his relationship, and the rooster crows the first time. I don't know if you've ever been in a car accident where all of a sudden everything seems to go in slow motion, and things are spinning around, and you know what's going on, but there's no control you have over it at all. That must have been how it felt when Simon's fear pulled him again for the final time to deny the Lord. And he could see what was happening. He'd already heard the rooster crow once and then the rooster crowed the second time. And Simon Peter went out and threw himself into a ditch and he wept bitterly. Fast forward through the crucifixion, the burial, the empty tomb. Jesus has appeared several times to the disciples but never alone with Simon Peter. And they have yet to have a conversation about what went on in the courtyard outside of Caiaphas' house. Until one morning, Simon Peter goes out fishing with some of the buddies. And they're in the boat. Someone comes walking along the shore and cries out to them, have you caught anything? And they say, nothing. And then the voice says, throw the net on the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden, Simon Peter has a deja vu moment when he remembers the first time he heard those words. It was the first time that he heard Jesus Christ call him forth. And they did throw the net just like they did that time. And just like that time, they brought in so many fish that it was hard for them to get them all to the shore. Simon Peter couldn't wait. He dove into the water and he swam to the shore. And sure enough, it was Jesus who was standing there, had already prepared a fire. There were fish already on the grill and bread that was baking they had breakfast together in the early hours beside the lakeside and then Jesus glanced over at Simon Peter and he said let's go on a walk and they began to stroll along the seaside and three times Jesus asked Simon Peter do you love me do you love me do you really love me and each time he asked he said yes Lord you know I love you Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And the last time it says that Simon Peter was deeply grieved that the Lord would ask him again. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And each time he responded, he heard the words of Jesus, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs, shepherd my flock. In other words, Simon, get back in the game. You may have given up on yourself, but I have not given up on you. Once again, even after the resurrection, Jesus was still communicating the God of hope, the God of second chances, the God of miracle 
finishes. Fast forward now 2,000 years to our final story that takes place in our present day. In college, I met Darren. I was only 21 years old whenever I met him. And two years later, we started trying to have children, and it was kind of a struggle for us. But three months later, I got pregnant with my first child, Caitlin. Two years later came Alec, and then two years after that came Drew. And it was probably after we, whenever I had Drew, was whenever we found out I had an advanced form of skin cancer. I was only 28 years old, and so kind of went through that whole, you know, mom, I've been mom of three kids, and kind of that, boy, I don't feel very pretty these days, and um, now I have this hole in my leg, and that's really when the lies began. The lies of, you know, there has to be more to life than this. There has to be more to marriage than this. This isn't what I signed up for. Surely somebody else will make me happy. And so, as you can imagine, a man at work started showing me attention. And then that's when the first affair started. The shame that I felt was overwhelming. Darren picked up on it right away. And so, this affair was very short-lived. Shortly after that, Darren and I, we moved to Texas. We thought, well, we'll just run away from it and get a fresh start and everything will be fine. Well, I buried myself in work. And so for probably about a year, I didn't see much of Darren. I didn't see much of the kids. And um, you go looking for that fulfillment in, in money and then success. And there was just this longing in me that I couldn't understand. And shortly after that, the lie started again. And I remember thinking, man, I don't even have a morsel of Darren's attention. He doesn't tell me I'm beautiful. He doesn't tell me he loves me. Doesn't he see what I'm doing? Doesn't he, like, appreciate me anymore? And after that, a different man started showing me attention, and that affair started. This one was a little bit different, though. This one lasted for almost two years. The grief was just too much. I started going to counseling because at this point, nobody knew that I had been involved in this. And so I began counseling, and after a month of counseling, I decided to tell Darren that I was done and that I wanted a divorce. And so I, I moved out after that, and the divorce moved along quickly, except I would spend my nights in bed just curled up in a ball crying. I didn't understand all of this. And at one point, I just wanted to breathe and feel like my heart wasn't being ripped out of my chest. I just had this insatiable thirst for God. I wanted to talk to Him. I wanted to know Him because apparently I had been so wrong for all of those years. God had, had been blessing me with some amazingly true Christian women friends. And one of them looked at me and said, Amy, when are you going to realize you're forgiven? And that was a turning point for me. And it was at that moment when like a tsunami of his love came over me and he wrecked my heart and, and won me over all in one fell swoop. I knew that my life would never be the same. So fast forward to about January 2nd, 2012. I was sitting down getting ready to read and God said, Amy, I need your attention. I know I've asked a lot of you over the last few years since you've been divorced, but I, I need you to do something for me and it's going to be difficult. Now I need you to go reconcile your marriage to Darren. And I said, okay, that's crazy. I'll do anything. I'll move my kids far, far away, but don't make me do that. Don't you remember how much pain that caused? And he goes, yeah, I was there the whole time. 
And so after that, I contacted Darren, and he too thought I was crazy. Um, but it was interesting because we had a marriage ministry getting ready to start a church. So we thought, well, let's give this a, sh a shot. And so we went, and shortly after we had, had started working through the topics of like brokenness and forgiveness, um, we decided to get remarried. On June 19th, 2012, we got remarried. And it really hasn't been easy, but it's been incredibly worth it this whole time. I remember my daughter, she was going through a really rough time whenever we, we first decided to get back together again. And I remember Darren looking at her going, well, Caitlin, what would you think if mom and I said we wanted to get our family back together? She whipped her head around. She said, what? Because remember, we had been divorced for two years. And he said, what, what do you think about us getting our family back together? And that 11-year-old girl just covered her face and bawled. And it was at that moment when I realized just how deeply I had hurt her, that my sins had consequences that far-reached mine and Darren's pain, that my selfishness had broken her heart. And it's at those moments you're glad for just being obedient and for God protecting her. So I remember one time last year she applied to a new school and um, one of the questions on the application says, how do you know Jesus is real? And her response is, was because Jesus fixed my family. And here it's been, you know, five years later. But what I have found is when I am still and I'm just quiet, that God has this amazing gift and it's free, but he wants us to take it. And those times when we feel like we're unworthy and that our past makes us not be able to be welcome in his presence, it's those moments when he wants to draw us in. And despite my past and despite everything that's happened, the great I am says, Amy, I love you and I'm proud that you're my daughter. Took a lot of courage for Amy to share that story, to just talk about her sin in front of everyone. But Amy's not the only one who has a problem. We all do, don't we? And what if all of our sin was broadcast on a large screen? We'd all be in the same place, wouldn't we? We have a problem. And the fact that we're disconnected from the God who created us, who knows what's best for us, who loves us deeply, is what causes all the other problems in life. You know, when Jesus arrived on this earth, he found everyone in one of three places. And we're all there, one, in one of the three places. There's, first of all, the crowd, just that large throng. And the crowd could be so fickle. One day, they're, they're crying out, Hail, King of the Jews, and throwing down palm branches. And the next day, they're saying, Crucify him, crucify him. In that crowd, there were critics, and there were in the crowd those who were curious and weren't sure what to think about Jesus. Same crowd is here today. Some of you here as critics. I know that. God bless you. We love you. Some of you are here just because you're curious. You're not sure yet. You're curious. But when Jesus walked on this earth, there were some who stepped outside of the crowd, a lady who ventured at the banquet to pour perfume on his feet, a disciple who left his net for a promise of something grander in life, 
and purpose. Amy, who stepped outside of religion and a church experience into a personal relationship with him. And those in the crowd become those who are convinced. They become followers. And some of you are there today. But there is another step because he calls us beyond just being recipients of his grace. He also calls us to be dispensers of his grace. And that's what he was saying to Simon Peter on the shore that day. If you love me, love those that I love. It's not enough just to be a follower. Remember when I called you? I called you to be a fisher of men. Now, every one of us, we're in one of those three groups. We're either in the crowd as critics or as curious. Or we're convinced as followers. Or perhaps some of us have even taken a further step to be dispensers of grace to be contagious contributors as well as receivers of grace. We want to be here for you as your church to help you on that journey, even if you don't live here, uh, to help you in some way to move toward that journey. In the handout you received, there's a response card, and there's some opportunities for you to let us know how we can help you. There's an A that says, I'm already a Christian, but for whatever reason, I've wandered away from God, and I just need to come home just like Simon Peter came back to Christ. There's a B on there that says, I am a believer, but I need to be baptized. I want you to hear this, don't miss this. The woman who poured the perfume on the feet of Jesus, she did that even though it took great courage to do that as a sign of gratitude. You know how we do that today? He doesn't ask us to anoint his feet with perfume. He asks all of us who are followers to be baptized. And I know that can be hard for some of you, it's embarrassing sometimes for us, but it's just like that woman taking that step of faith, that expensive gift of gratitude. Some of you need to be baptized. And some of you are stepping out of the crowd for the very first time, and you're curious to the point that you want to talk to someone about what it means to be committed to Jesus Christ. And we'd love to start that conversation with you. You could either stop by the Connection Center or you could just circle that C, and we will get in touch with you, and we'll continue that conversation. You know, one of the things about baseball is a lot of people say that baseball is boring. And uh, I agree, that's why I love baseball. My life has way too much excitement in it and I enjoy just sitting there for three hours. But you know, there are moments, even in baseball, when it's pretty exciting. One of those moments is the walk-off home run. Uh, for those of you not as familiar with baseball, that's when you're behind and you're in the ninth inning and somebody on your team hits a home run, and in the process of doing so, it wins the game right there. It ends, and the team walks off as the victors. The great thing about being a believer is that uh, the game is not over until the last batter bats. And if you're a follower of a God of hope, a God of second chances, a God of miracle finishes, you understand that our God always bats last. That was not God, that was Adrian Beltre. <clears throat> but God is not finished with you yet. He's not. Let's thank him for that. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We're so grateful today that the last chapter has not yet been written over any of our lives. And that when we celebrate, truly celebrate your death, burial, and resurrection, we receive you into our life that it makes all the difference in the world. Right now in the quietness of this prayer, dear Father, there's some who are ready to do that. And Father, I want to just lead them in a prayer right now. If you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life to forgive you and take control of your life, would you just pray this simple prayer to the Lord in your heart right now? Dear God, I know I have a problem. I've been disconnected from you. Thank you for coming to share God's love with us. I get it. Please forgive me. Please begin to change me. I'll live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.